You know, there's something about uh, songs that kind of catch our attention, that stick with us. You know, like the kids learn those songs for VBS, you know that they're going to be running around their heads for several, several days and maybe weeks or even months. Um, and, and the same thing can happen uh, when, we, when we do worship together. Today, the, the, the psalms that we're looking at, Psalm 122 and 133, are in a part of the Psalter, the book of Psalms, kind of a mini book within a book. And they're known as the song, Songs of Ascent. A-S-C-E-N-T. And they're called that because they were songs that the people of Israel would sing together as they were traveling up, traveling up to the, to the city of Jerusalem, where they would gather and, for special holidays and special festivals and times of worship. So they were called the songs of ascent. And so the songs that, uh, that, um, the psalms that Wes just read would have been sort of like those VBS songs, only for the whole family. They would sing them as they were traveling together to get to Jerusalem. And in this, there's a book of uh, these, these uh, psalms of ascent. They're from 121 to 137 in the Psalter. And there's a variety of themes. There's songs that deal with, um, with unity and, and, and community. And that's what these two are. Uh, and, and the focus is on these psalms is how can we do life together? How can we do community together? Listen to how they begin. Psalm 131 again. How good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters live together in unity. Psalm 122, I rejoice with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. So David here, the psalmist, puts into song what is said and demonstrated throughout the scriptures time and again. Community is essential. In other words, there are no there are to be no solitary uh, pilgrims, no lone rangers out on their own trying to follow Jesus by themselves, pulling themselves up by their bootstraps, depending only on themselves. Remember the, uh, the lyrics from the, one of the old uh, Simon and Garfunkel songs? I am a rock. I am an island. Well, the Christian is not to be an island disconnected from other believers. No Christian is an only child. So our first truth to pull from this song is God calls us to be committed to community. You know, as the, the Jewish people would make their way to Jerusalem, as they were singing these songs, they didn't do it solo. They came from different tribes, different walks of life, different regions, different families. And, but no matter how hard the journey was, the companionship of God's people made that journey easier. And we, too, in a sense, are pilgrims, aren't we? This world is not our final resting place. We have a destination or a heavenly home, and we are to travel together. The moment we become Christians, we become part of a body of believers. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this about the body of Christ. Our community with one another consists in what Christ has done for us. In other words, Christ is the basis of the church. Christ is the basis of our relationships. We are family in him. Now, granted, our relationships with God through Christ, are, they're all personal. You know, we, we can't have a relationship with God in Christ through somebody else. It can't be vicarious. It has to be a personal relationship. But God does not make private, secret salvation deals with people. His relationships with us are personal. Yes, they're intimate. True. But private. No, God intends for us to work out our salvation and follow Jesus in the context of community. It's been this way since the beginning. Think back at the beginning of the Bible. God creates Adam and Eve to be companions in the garden. 
In Exodus, God calls the whole community of Israel out of Egypt. They travel together. They follow God together. We have the example of Christ, who lived and worked with 12 disciples in community. And on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, the early church was formed when 120 people gathered together and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. The Bible knows nothing of a faith that is defined only by what a person does inwardly in the privacy of their own heart or home, apart from others in isolation. Remember what Jesus said when he was asked, what's the greatest commandment in Matthew 22? He responds by saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. That's a personal thing, right? But then he follows it up. He, makes, he connects our experience of love and faith for God to community, stating in the next verse, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Philip Yancey puts it this way, Christianity is not a purely intellectual internal faith. It can only be lived in community. You know, one of the first things I did when I uh, enrolled in college as a freshman was I looked for a group of guys that I could do life with, kind of, you're looking for friends, you're looking for, I didn't know anybody, nobody from my hometown was going to school there. And so I looked for a group of guys I could do life with. And I looked for guys specifically who were committed to loving and following Jesus Christ. Because I knew that I would struggle spiritually unless I had a circle of friends who would travel through four years of school with me. And God graciously blessed me with five of the best guys you could ask for. And we helped each other spiritually immensely. Each person here today must have a small circle of support and be part of a larger Christian community if they want to grow in Christ. Proverbs 27:17 tells us, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. It's in community where we're known and know others that we find challenge, accountability, support, encouragement, and help. This is how God has designed us. And if we do not seek community at the very best, we'll stagnate in our walk with Christ and be ineffective. And at the worst, we'll drift away, struggles will come, and we'll fall into sin. As the people of God, we are called to community. Next, let's take a look at Psalm 122, verse 2. Our feet are standing in your gates, O Israel, or, or Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. That is where the tribes go up, the 12 tribes, the tribes of the Lord to praise the name of the Lord according to the statutes given in Israel, given to Israel. You probably had this experience growing up, at least folks of my age or so, is uh, we we didn't have minivans back then. I mean, you had the conversion vans, those were big things, but most people had sedans, cars or station wagons. And when we would go on vacation, um, the three of us had to sit in the same seat, the back seat. And there's always an argument between my brother and my sister and I who had to sit in the middle. Because remember, there's the hump in the middle. It wasn't comfortable. He got cramped. And my sister usually lost. She was the youngest and she was the smallest. But, but the trip was miserable for our family until that all got sorted out. You know, sadly, many Christians know all too well the experience of disharmony, of arguing or fighting with sisters and brothers in the family of God. The first story in the Bible about brothers is the story of Cain and Abel. Remember how that ends? Murder and exile. And by the way, their fight was the worst kind of fight. It was a religious fight. A quarrel over whom God liked best, whom God would plead, would, who, whose offering would be best. Other examples include Joseph, his brothers. They sold him into slavery. David, his brothers, his sons. 
Even Jesus and his brothers had their problem. In John 7, we're told that they didn't believe in him until after the resurrection. They thought he was crazy. They thought he was insane. It's tough living in a community of any kind. And the church is no different, is it? All sorts of people, different backgrounds, personalities, preferences, agendas. And sooner or later in the body of Christ, you're bound to run into somebody that you don't see eye to eye with. Somebody who rubs you the wrong way. But in God's perfect plan, we are all brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. We don't get a say on who is in our family and who is not. If you're in the body of Christ, if you're in the church, you're a brother and you're a sister. So in God's perfect plan, his design for the church, it leads us to the second truth that God calls us to be united in diversity. Remember, there are 12 tribes. They would have come from different regions, different backgrounds. There would have been tribal jealousies and rivalries, no doubt. But they set aside all those things for God's sake. And during their time in Jerusalem, they would worship, they would pray, they would eat, they would celebrate. They did life together, diverse, yet one. You know, as a church with several hundred people here who call First Covenant home, we have young and old and married, single, divorced, widowed. We have people with a variety of church backgrounds. We have people who have no church background. We have long-term committed believers. We have new Christians. We have those who aren't quite sure what they believe yet. And God in his wisdom has, has brought us all together. He's called us together. In fact, that's what the, the, the Greek word for church is, ecclesia, like ecclesiastical. It means people who are called out and called to be together. We are called to show the world that what unifies us is our common love for the Lord and as an extension, our love for each other. A founding verse for the Covenant Church 125 years ago or so, our denomination, was this verse up here. I'm a companion of all who fear you, O God. Jesus himself prayed for the unity of all believers in John 17, the night before he went to the cross. Remember what he prayed? He prayed that his followers might be one just as he and the Father are one. Think about what that means. Jesus connects our unity with the unity that exists between the persons of the Trinity. We are to reflect the image of the triune God in our life together. And when we live together in unity, we are able to reveal something of God's nature to the world and to each other. And our witness to those who don't know Jesus is strong. Thirdly, let's take a look now at Psalm 122, verse 6. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my brothers and sisters, I will say, peace be with you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. You know, when I do premarital counseling for couples when they're getting ready to get married, one of the, one of the things I strongly encourage them to do is, is to pray together on a regular, consistent basis. Because, because it fosters, among many things, mutual love and unity. It's very hard to stay angry at somebody with someone that you're praying. William Law said this, There is nothing that makes us love another so much as prayer for them. He's calling, David is in the psalm, he's calling his people to, God's people to, to, to pray for the peace of the city, to, to pray specifically for their brothers and sisters. And so the third truth is God is calling us to be purposeful in prayer. There's a great story about uh, Charles Spurgeon. He was a well-known British preacher in the 1800s. 
And uh, one day, five young men went to his church. They were thinking about ministry. They wanted to know what it was all about. So they show up to church. Uh, before it starts, the doors are closed. Um, and a man comes out and greets them. He said, well, let me show you around. Would you, let's begin. Would you like to start with the, the heating plant? And they're thinking, the heating plant? Why would we want to go to the furnace room? You know, it's, it's, it's June. It's the summer. It's hot and muggy. Uh, but they didn't want to offend him, so they said, sure, we'll go with you. So the tour began there. And they, he took them downstairs, and they, the door was opened quietly, and their, guard, their, their guide whispered, this is our heating plant. And they saw 700 people bowed in prayer, seeking a blessing on the service that was just about to begin in the auditorium above the room. And the door closed, and the gentleman introduced himself as... Charles Spurgeon. What a great metaphor. Prayer as the furnace which fires our love and commitment to God. Prayer as a catalyst which moves God to sweep through a church, bringing revival and renewal, conviction, grace, and mercy. You know, what amazing things will God do if, if as one people we pray as never before? Now, now I, of course, I acknowledge that many, many of you Pray for this church. Pray for us as staff. have told me personally they pray for me and my family. We appreciate that so much. Please keep it up. Many of you have said you wish you could do more, but be assured your prayers are, are critical. They're necessary. You know, when I was in seminary, um, something all of us have to go through is something called CPE, Clinical Pastoral Education. It might be called something different now, but that's basically it, it, they, they wanted to train you in an experience to know how to operate and minister in you know, in, in uh, hospital settings. And I remember sometimes hearing people say, almost with a sense of resignation and hopelessness, well, all we can do now is pray. And I understand what they were saying. Uh, but looking back, I think a correction needs to be made. It shouldn't be all we can do now is pray. It should be the best we can do. The best we can do now is pray. Because prayer should never be the, the last resort of desperate people. Prayer is the absolute best thing that we can be doing. It's the best weapon that God has given us. It's the first thing that we are to do as individuals and as a church in any situation. You know, growing up, one of the things I remember most about uh, my grandmother's house was a small set of ceramic hands kind of clasped together in prayer. And at the base, there was a quote from Alfred Lord Tennyson. More thoughts are wrought, or excuse me, more things are wrought by prayer than this world dreams of. I believe that God will answer our prayers. I believe that God wants to do amazing things in us and in our church. And we are to pray not only for the peace of the church, we are to pray for the sake of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Just think, if we committed to pray through, for example, the church directory over the course of several months, to pray for the marriages and for the kids, for those who are single, for the struggling, the lonely, the the, the hurting, the, the sick, the ill. Just think about those who are seeking the Lord. Just think about what God could do if we commit ourselves to pray in such a way. Next, let's take a look at Psalm 133, verse 2. It's referring again to unity in God's people. It, unity, is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down upon the collar of his robes. Now, oil in the Old Testament, particularly in the, uh, in the Old Testament, was, um, was a symbol which meant to, was meant to portray that God's blessing was coming down or being poured out from above, a sign of God's presence, uh, a sign of consecration, a sign of the Holy Spirit. And this particular scenario refers to the instructions given in Ex- Exodus 29 
when Aaron, Moses' brother, is ordained to be the priest of the people of God. This is how priests were commissioned. Oil would be poured over their heads, hands would be laid upon them, and prayer would be offered and they would be commissioned, marked as God's, uh, God's priests. I remember, for instance, my own ordination ceremony 22 years ago when the leaders of the denomination laid their hands upon me and prayed for me as I knelt. However, in a real sense, all of God's people are to be anointed. They're, they're set apart for ministry. God is calling us to be priests for each other. First Peter 2.9 says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God. And that tells us that all who claim Christ as their Lord and Savior, all are set apart to do God's work and to minister for and with each other. Uh, we are to bring God's presence to bear. We're to build bridges. That's what the, the Latin for priest means, bridge. We're to be bridges that bring each other closer to the Lord through our prayers, our love, our actions, and our words. Next, let's take a look at Psalm 133, verse 3. It, again, referring to God's people being united. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. You probably had this experience uh, camping, say, uh, up in the mountains, Colorado or Yellowstone or someplace like that. You get up in the morning in the summer and your, your tent is soaked with dew or, or the ground around you is soaked with dew. The picnic table, everything's wet because of the, the change in the temperature and, and, and the elevation. Well, the, the Hermon that's mentioned in verse 3 is an actual mountain about an hour north of Jerusalem. It's about 10,000 feet, the highest point in the area, and it's known for its heavy dews. Mount Hermon typically receives very little rainfall. And without its heavy dews, the, 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 the life and growth of its plants and creatures would be, would, be, would be hindered or ended. It refreshes. The dew refreshes, renews, and revives. So it is to be with the people of God. God is calling us to be united to refresh and renew one another. And when the people of God are united as one in Christ... Loving God and loving each other as God intended, the church is an oasis in the desert, a place of renewal and refreshment for followers of Christ as we journey from this world to the next. And we need that do of fellowship to stay alive and to grow in the faith. I have personally have drunk deeply from your fellowship many times. I've been refreshed so many times by so many of you, and I'm so grateful for that. I'm sure many of you could say the same thing. It's something which we as a congregation are striving to do and Regardless, I mean, obviously, sometimes we don't get it right. Sometimes the ball gets dropped, but we want to be and we're called to be a people who refresh and renew each other. Finally, at the end of Psalm 133, the Lord inspires David to say, for there in the midst of God's unity is what he's referring to. For there, the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. We most completely find God's blessings in our relationships in the body of Christ when a church is united, diverse yet one, committed to each other, praying for each other, loving each other. And as we do so, just step back and be amazed at the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that will fall down, anointing, reviving, refreshing, and renewing. We are called to community. We're called to prayer. We're called to unity. We're called to ministry as God's priest. And we're called to renew and refresh. Let's pray.
God, we thank you for your love for us. We're grateful for your word. We thank you for the body of Christ. Lord, we are flawed and imperfect people, and yet you call the body of Christ the bride of Christ. Uh, Jesus Christ died for us. He died for the church, and he is the head of the church. Lord, help us as your people to, to be united with a common love for you and a love for each other that, in, that really is attractive and, and compelling to those around us. We pray, Lord, that we would minister to each other as, as priests, as set aside for your, for your purposes. And Lord, we, we ask that we would be people who renew and refresh and revive each other. We offer ourselves to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.